Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me, every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. And Napolitano is back on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books for Hello Beautiful. She was also on for Dear Edward. This conversation between us was a live event at the Temple Emanuel Stryker Center. Anne's novel, Hello Beautiful, was published in March 2023 and was an instant New York Times bestseller. It was the 100th Oprah Book Club pick. Dear Edward was published in January 2020 and was an instant New York Times bestseller, a read with Jenna selection, and was released on February 3rd as an Apple TV Plus series starring Connie Britton, It was named one of the best books of 2020 by the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, Real Simple, Fast Company, Women's World, Parade, Library Reads, and Amazon. Anne is also the author of the novels A Good Hard Look and Within Arm's Reach. She was the associate editor of One Story Literary Magazine for six years 
and received an MFA from New York University. She has taught fiction writing for Brooklyn College's MFA program, New York University's School of Continuing and Professional Studies, and for Gotham Writers Workshop. In November 2019, Anne was longlisted for the Simpson Joyce Carol Oates Literary Prize. A Good Hard Look was published in the United States by Penguin. The novel appeared on the Southern Independent Bestseller list and was one of NPR's Best of 2011 picks. It was also an Indie Next pick and an Okra pick. Her first novel, Within Arm's Reach, was adapted and staged as a theatrical production in New York City in 2014. Anne lives in Brooklyn with her husband and two children. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. And before we start, I just wanted to acknowledge everything going on in the world for a minute. Here we are at the Temple Emanuel Stryker Center just days after this catastrophic attack. And by no means do I want to turn this into anything political, but I have been just like many of you on here, I'm sure, like sick, physically sick, crying, just so, you know, our hearts go out to all of the people affected, the families, everybody there, everybody in the world. And I just wanted to send my own condolences and my own just visceral feelings about how upsetting it all is. And, you know, all this history that we've learned about all of the attacks on in the Holocaust. And now all of a sudden it just feels like, okay, well, we learned this all for a reason and now just pay attention. And anyway, I'll stop there, but just wanted everybody to feel like it was okay to discuss and it's, it's in the world. And I just, I am with you and my heart is just broken. So anyway, wanted to just start with that. Thank you okay. for speaking to that. <laughs> Moving on. Okay. And hello, beautiful masterpiece book. And by the way, there is nothing more uplifting when the world is crazy and confusing and upsetting than diving into a fabulous, immersive read like Hello, Beautiful, which I could not put down. And like I'm sure everybody on here, I'm just such a huge fan. Your writing is sensational. I know I talked to you about Dear Edward a while back and now back again for Hello Beautiful. So, Anne, welcome. Sorry to monopolize at the beginning. Um, this will be all about you from now on. No, no, no. I'm glad that you spoke to that. And thank you, Sydney. Thanks so much. It's lovely to speak to you again. Me too. For anybody who perhaps has not read Hello Beautiful. Can you give just like the two line? Because I bet most people here have already read it, but th it's possible that this is a big sales opportunity for you. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I end up describing it differently every time. So here goes for this time. It takes place between 1960 and 2008. It's set mostly in Chicago. And it starts with a sad little boy named William Waters who grows up and moves to Chicago. And is sort of taken in by a family of four sisters, the Padovano sisters, who have a very connected, loving home, which is the opposite of the home that he came from. And the combination of his history with their family and love ends up having sort of involved, it changes all of their lives for the better and for the worse over the next 30 years. Wow. And you have this gift of writing about very sad boys. Where is this coming from? <laughs> I know. I don't know. I don't know why I do that. I mean, the sadness, I guess I understand. I don't know why I put it into sad boys, but I have two boys. Uh, I have two sons. And I, part of it, I think is that a, I'm worried about my boys. I'm worried about all the children of the world. I'm worried about how men are raised and grown and, and seen and the beauty and the sadness that they have in them. 
like everyone else has. And I want to make sure they're going to be okay. So in a way, in my books, I think I'm trying to make sure that it's possible for them to be okay, even when the world is really scary and precarious and often incredibly sad. Wow. And where did this idea come from? And how long were you working on this? I know Dear Edward was took quite a while. Yeah, Dear Edward was eight years. And I actually wrote this in two, which is in which is like lightning speed for me. And largely that had to do with the pandemic. My process for the last two books is that for the first, from when I have an idea for nine months, I don't let myself write because what I really love to do is to write what I call pretty sentences <laughs> where I I start a scene and something, someone walks in the room and says something that I didn't expect. And then something happens that I didn't know was going to happen. So it's like being a reader. It's an act of discovery and it's so satisfying, but I often end up meandering all over the place. So I have found that if I set aside a distinct period of time, what has ended up being nine months, which I didn't realize was the length of a pregnancy, but of course it's the length of a pregnancy where I'm not allowed to write the pretty sentences, but I can think, research and take notes about the idea that I have. So in this instance, there's always some kind of obsession. And when I say obsession, it's also an unlikely obsession that makes very little sense. Like I became obsessed for Dear Edward with a real plane crash, despite generally not wanting to hear about plane crashes or not having, you know, an interest in aviation per se. And for this book, it was a fascination with the history of basketball, despite being a soccer player growing up and being married to an Englishman who plays soccer and having two sons who play soccer, I became obsessed with the history of basketball. And I had this image of a lonely little boy dribbling a basketball. And then also I have an uncle who lives in Chicago. And when I was little, he I grew up in New Jersey and he used to send me postcards and they would always be addressed, hello, beautiful. And I knew he didn't really know what I looked like because he had like 20 million nieces and nephews and I hardly ever saw him. (laughs) So I felt like he was seeing that I was beautiful on the inside. And since I was a very shy bookish child, I really felt like if I had any beauty, it was on the inside. So that greeting made me feel, you know, really warm and special. And he lived in the neighborhood of Pilsen in Chicago. And so with this postcard, these series of postcards coming to me, I imagine Pilsen is this kind of like semi-magical world, like the world that are in the novels that I was reading, which also feel real, particularly when you're a kid. And so I wanted to set the book there. And then the third element really is that when I was growing up, my best friend Leah, I used to sleep at her house as often as I slept at my own. And her mom has five sisters and they all have slightly different versions of the same face. (laughs) <laughs> and they would just come come in and out of the house all the time and sort of start conversations in the middle. And they seemed more themselves when they were together than when they were separate. And I used to just sit there and watch them like they were a television show when I was a kid. And I really wanted to write my way into like understanding what the magic of that kind of sisterhood is. And that became the Padovano sisters. So sort of those those elements came together. And then the timing was that the nine month clock for my thinking, researching and taking notes actually ended in April, 2020. And of course I couldn't have known what April, 2020 was going to be like. None of us could. And my father died in April, 2020. So, but still it's like this timer went off and it was time to start the book. And so I, when I started writing, I immediately 
it was like I was writing all my own heartbreak and grief and and worry and you know the uncertainty of the world and what really mattered and what what were we going to do and be next into this novel. And I wrote more hours of the day than I ever have. And I wrote it in two years, you know, instead of eight, I think because I needed to find out if we could all be okay. And my way of doing that was through this story. Oh, well, I'm so sorry to hear about your dad. That's so sad. And now I'm reading this, you know, with a new lens or rethinking it. And I'm so sorry. Your passages on grief, I have to say, and loss just struck so close to home. Can I read like one or two examples that I just loved when you wrote about loss in general? Of course. You said, I don't want to give things away, but oh, I'll just, don't worry. I'll just, okay. <laughs> I'll just go to this. Sylvie had seen a photo of the aftermath of a massive earthquake once and the image had stayed with her. A road split in half lengthwise, revealing the middle of the earth and how silly humans were to build houses and schools and cars on top and pretend they were safe. Sylvie felt like she spent her days carrying an overnight bag and a book leaping over that chasm. I mean, what, like the before and after of loss, I had to pick that up in the middle. And then Mm -hmm. there was another part where one person says, that kind of loss must be hard. And she said, I didn't expect for it to be part of everything every minute. I didn't know that you could lose someone. And that meant you lost so much else. And they said, like, it's all connected. Anyway, these are just some of the many, many examples of of the writing about what it feels like to lose someone and just watching, watching the unpredictable fits and starts of when they would cry and when it would hit and that it wasn't necessarily when you might think, but then it comes out at another time and just how real that all was. So I don't, it was just incredibly powerful the way you wrote about it. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, we, it's so universal, obviously. I mean, we're leaping over the abyss today, you know, with the news of the world and we've all suffered foundational losses in our life and, and I think you have an idea of what that's going to look like before it happens and then what it actually looks like ends up being often very different, um, not necessarily worse or better, but just where it fractures and, and how it touches you and changes your life is sort of unknowable before you walk that path. And we've all, you know, we all at one point or another do that. So it's a very universal feeling. At what age did you first feel like you had a foundational loss? Or was it your dad? The most foundational certainly has been my dad. Until then, I think I was trying to experience it as like a very sensitive person through everybody around me and worrying a lot about foundational losses that didn't happen and thinking I knew what, you know, what was going to happen first. The losses that I had before him were not, didn't register in in the same way. The loss of a parent. I mean, anyway, I'm so sorry. In the book, you often pair, and you even address this, that things come sort of as a one-two punch, and that with loss sometimes comes something good or something new. Where did that come from, and have you experienced that, and how did you come up with that? Because now I'm like, is that true? (laughs) Maybe not in the timing of the book. I know, not in the timing of the book, I don't think. I, I didn't plan that. That was one of these things where I think without giving anything away, one of the four Padovano sisters um, gives birth the day that someone very important in their life dies. And then the next time another one gives birth, there's another sh- major shift in their family that day as well. And 
I do think that life is about doors opening and closing and they do both. It's not like you only lose, you know, you're also walking into joy and new loves and deepening loves as often or more often, hopefully than, than we lose. And it really is all, you know, like they say, the cycle of life. And it's really important to be aware of all of it. Like to, to not pretend the hard stuff doesn't happen, but also not to push away the joy and the silliness and the delight and the love when it's nearby as well. You've got to reach out and grab that and and also and then, you know, be willing to look in the face of the sadness when that comes as well. So beautiful. I only have a brother. I don't have a sister. But the way you wrote about those close bonds of sisterhood. And I just can't get the image of the two sisters, you know, on the couch, just Mm -hmm. fitting into each other. Like they were just enmeshed. And even later when you talk about, you know, almost the shadow of the other person and just how enmeshed these girls all were, not enmeshed sounds negative, just how, how close and what that, how unique that bond was. Tell me about writing that. And do you have a sister? I feel like you don't have a sister, but did I make that up? I don't know. No, I do. I have a brother and a sister and a half sister. Um, okay, sorry. But I also think that people, you can have a found, you know, found sisters and found brothers and found, you know, mothers and fathers. It's it's chosen family as well as, you know, the given family. I mean, I d- it really was my friend Leah's aunts where I was like, this is, there's this spectacular magic going on between these women and it's particular to them. And, you know, it's this this deep rooted, they're so deeply rooted with each other that the roots are entwined beneath them. And I really wanted to, I think I would love to have that. I don't, you know, and I think it's so that where it is your given family and you are entwined like that is incredibly rare and incredibly special. And writing my way into that was a joy. Like I got to be, you know, sort of one with that kind of sisterhood and those sisters and and certainly they're not enmeshed in any kind of, I think, you know, unhealthy way. It's just, I think in female friendships too, there's this, there can be this beautiful power where you look at the other person and you're like, I see all of your potential and all of your beauty and everything you can be as well as what you are. And that lights the other person up and they do that for you. So that even when you're, you know, going through a heartbreak or feeling schlumpy or, you know, like going through a slump that person looks at you and is like, yeah, I see that. But I also see like what you can be. And these girls do that for each other. And I think female relationships have that particular power and beauty. And I really, I loved exploring that because I loved living inside. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Amazing. It's interesting how you say how the roots were tangled and yet Rose being a gardener, the matriarch of the family, her she's like in the in the back garden and dealing with the plants and all of that. And I feel like roots are such an essential part of this whole story. Yeah. Well, Rose, though, being who Rose is, is trying to like control the roots. Yes, you know? true. <laughs> and make, yeah. make them go in the direction she wants them to go into and making sure they're like tidy and in control, which, you know, doesn't work so well in human relationships when you try and do that to people. True. Very true. Well, there's a need for control throughout. I mean, different characters have it more than others, essentially, but particularly Julia, I mean, she needs to control everything. And and then you see the effects of that. What happens when you're in a world where somebody is trying to control you? What does that create? And that's also an interesting yeah. thing. It's really interesting when, as people have read the book, they generally either really have a problem with Julia or really have a problem with Sylvie. Huh. And and it doesn't overlap. Like you're either the kind of person who objects to Julia's way of living and the sort of consequences that it engenders or really have a problem with Sylvie, who is more of a dreamer. She's a reader. She's She deeply believes in love and in seeing people Honestly, without sort of putting projections or expectations or assumptions on them, she really wants to be seen and she really wants to see you. And um, it's been interesting to me how those two women who love each other so much sort of trigger things in different people. I am actually like personally offended that people would have an issue with Sylvie. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, what? What do you mean? Well, people really think she cro- she crosses a line that you just cannot cross. But we understand. We, we, get a, we have like zoomed into that line. So like every speck, mm-hmm. anyway, it has been you know, exaggerated. So we see it, but I don't know. I agree, um, obviously. But you also, I mean, I know we touched on this, the sisterhood, but you also did a beautiful job writing about men's friendships, which, you know, Kent and William's friendship, you don't often read that as much. Those, how the bonds of, you know, being together, standing through, saying like, oh no, I'm going to be here for you. And just even like showing up when his former teammates, you know, just like showing up on the benches and being like, I'm going to be here every week. I mean, it makes me cry just to think about it. It's so beautiful. It's so nice. Oh. You don't see that enough, part of, I feel like. Thank you. That was one of the side effects of um, that are unexpected for me of, you know, where like a, an obsession leads me into the story where I'm like, okay, I'm going to write about basketball. I don't know why exactly. Yeah. And one of, one of the things that I really loved writing was about being on a team. And really, I think this goes for everybody, but but often particularly for boys and young men is that 
the great thing about a team is that it takes all kinds on a team. Like you can't have a, a team of all golden boy stars. You need role players. You need like the gutsy guy who's running up and down the court. You need the sort of brainy one who's figuring out the plays. You need the star. You need the, the major athlete. And because teams need all of those things, they welcome the misfits, basically. They welcome mm-hmm. the peculiar person who isn't necessarily very good at you know, forming friendships or, you know, having conversations or anything like that. And that's what William is. But within the infrastructure of a team, men are allowed to love each other. Like they're allowed to slap each other on the back or to notice that one of them is having some problems and just show up for them because, and they're, they feel within themselves that that's okay because they're teammates. Mm -hmm. So it, it gives them this place where they can really love, show their love for each other and, and have it's a great privilege when you can show up for someone in their hard time. Like it's such a gift for yourself to be able to do that. And the team nature of it allows them to do that. It allows Kent and William to have this beautiful friendship that is started from a place that has like expectations that allow it. So I really, I really did love writing about what it means to be on a team for these mm-hmm. men. Well, my main takeaway is if I am ever given a set of floor seats to any basketball game. I am calling you. <laughs> oh, awesome. I'm kidding. I mean, I haven't even been to a basketball game in a long time. Anyway, I, I could I could sense all of your passion for it and all of the knowledge and and that was really wonderful. You know. And there's something too about, you know, being able to anticipate how slight injuries, physical or emotional, then sort of ricochet throughout life. And you demonstrate this in a, in a lot of ways, whether it's an emotional slight or, you know, a, an accident or something. And no matter how much you focus on it or try to change the narrative, it's going to push you in one direction. And all you can do is then try to accommodate it versus fix it. Yeah. It's, I mean, you, maybe for William in playing basketball, which is what he loves to do, more than anything else. And I think because he was this lonely little boy dribbling a basketball, it is sort of the activity that has allowed him to sort of function and hold himself together has always been the having the outlet of basketball. So when he has a physical injury in college and it's his second one, so it's sort of career ending, he's injured physically, but it take it removes this sort of emotional crutch that he's been using for his whole life too. So it really is like, we're so... Absolutely. It's the mind body, you know, we're a whole entity. Like you can't injure one part of us without, you know, taking down the larger system. And that's really what happens to William. And of course, these things happen on a dime, you know, you step off a curb and you break your ankle and, you know, like, and then you have to come back from that, not only like in rehabbing your ankle, but like, you just, that, that will take you down. And, you know, we, these are the moments where you need, you know, the people around you to step forward, but it also, it leads to a reckoning, you know, within your bones and within like, who am I going to be in response to this? And what does this mean for who I want to be next? And it was interesting to me to explore that for athletes, but also, you know, in the effect that it has on all of us. So when I finished the book, I was like, I have just been on such a journey. <laughs> like I felt like I had, just lived these lives because you the the span of it and the in-depth narratives and all the different points of view and everyone's life and the setbacks and 
and the joys and the sorrows. Like, I feel like I had kind of lived with this family and just gone through it from the writing standpoint. Like, how did you feel coming to the end of it? And how do you even feel now about looking back on how you wrote this in that timeline and the characters themselves? Like, do you, how do you feel about the whole thing? And where is this, where does the journey go from here? Yeah, I, I get depressed every time I finish a book. And this was the worst one, <laughs> where particularly because of the process of the sort of book writing publishing timeline, where you finally finish. And in generally, the last like six months of writing a book are, for me anyway, are completely immersive, where you're just trying to pull all the threads together that you weren't even able to see before, because you've now the story is there. And I've now created the world. So it's, it's fully real. It's the 3d universe that I am living inside and loving. And I love all these characters and I love being in that world as much, if not more than I love being in my real world. And then all of a sudden you get it to where it's singing (laughs) and meaning really just that it's complete. It's real. It's true. And then I have to hand it over and when you hand it over, you're actually handing it over to the copywriting phase, which means like copy editors take it and they put it into the sort of software of the publisher. So it's actually not even on my computer anymore. So it's really gone and no one has read it yet, like except for like six people at Random House. So no one, it's like it doesn't exist. It's like it went from, it's like you're standing in the middle, you know, of the world and it's gone completely silent. and and no one else knows about it and you don't have it with you anymore. And I just, I get really depressed. And the only thing that makes me feel better is getting a new idea. And it normally takes me a couple months for that to happen. So I had a few, like just emotional, emotional months where I was just hoping and thinking, okay, this has to go away eventually, but I just love them. So, you know, and I still love them, but once people start reading it, at least like, even if it's like a Goodreads review or not Goodreads, whatever it is that they do in their early reviews. And someone will be like, I, you know, I love Sylvie. And I'll be like, I love Sylvie too. You know, like, <laughs> at least I feel like it lives it's like living somewhere. So yes, that's the process. And then, and then I get excited because I have a new idea and a new world to start building and live in. And then I feel like I'm going to be okay again. I can't live with just the real world. <laughs> I'll let a therapist go into that. Why why that's the case, but I won't I won't touch it. Sure. Um what world did you create now? Like what what, um, what are you doing? What what are you writing? Where where are you in the in the alternate universe of your mind? Yeah. I feel like I should say I also have a lovely life. Like my real world is actually <laughs> really wonderful. I don't like it's not like I'm suffering in the real world. I just think the balance of who I am requires me to be reading a book usually listening to a book and writing a book, like there's a, there's a balancing for me to feel like the alchemy is right for myself. Like all those things have to be happening. So I got a new idea in like last fall. And again, it was an obsession that I can't really talk about the book yet because it doesn't make sense for me to do so. Uh, Still very gossamer, even though I've been working on it for a bit, but it was, my obsession is trees as opposed to basketball this time. I read The Overstory by Richard Towers last summer, which I'm sure most of you have read. Magnificent, remarkable novel. And when I was finished with it, he's like, you know, kind of like genius level 
brainy, beautiful writer, everything. And when I finish a book that I really, really, really am blown away by, I always listen to like every interview I can find with that writer. And he did a number after that book. And in a couple of them, he said that he felt like it was beholden on contemporary writers and artists to diversify the worlds that they're writing about and not only diversify within the human realm, which of course is incredibly important and and is taking place more than it used to, thank goodness, but also to, to diversify our storytelling to include the world that we live on. And that that kind of art is one of the necessary things that we need as humans to raise our consciousness in the way that it has to be raised for us to actually remain humans on this earth, to to look at the world as, you know, an organism that we are, organisms that we are fully related to. We have like 99% of our DNA is like similar to that of much of, of the rest of the king, the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom. Um, and so when he said that, I I felt like charged with it. Like, I was like, it's true. We do need to do that. I do need to do that. So I've been reading a lot about trees and the book I'm writing now takes place on a cul-de-sac in New Jersey in the town that I grew up in, basically, that's surrounded by a forest. And it's as much about the people on that cul-de-sac as, as it is about the trees and the forest and the world around it. Oh my gosh. Well, that sounds amazing. <laughs> Did your life change after becoming an Oprah's book club pick? Yes. I, yes, I think so. <laughs> yes. I mean, that, that day that my book came out, I didn't leave my house, thank God, because it was all so overwhelming with me even being in my house because... I had already filmed the announcement with Oprah a couple days earlier. So that showed on television that morning. And then there's a profile on me in the New York Times. And it was like the most overstimulating day of my life. And thank God I didn't leave my house. I mean, Oprah is, you know, she's Oprah. It's like a whole, she's a force of nature. She's a force of democratization of literature. She's done so much to make so many people put books in the hands of so many people and turn non-readers into readers and to spread her love of, of fiction. And I definitely felt like, you know, she put her hand on my shoulder and I was like, Oh, I'm, this is different. This, this is amazing. So yes, yes. And no, I mean, I, I still me and I hardly leave my house and, um, <laughs> but I'm incredibly grateful. And it was like her calling me on the phone to tell me was, I think that it, and I don't even think it was the most exciting thing that's ever happened to, to me in my life, for sure. Did you even believe it was her? I know. I thought it was a robocall. Like I thought, cause you, you know, like you answer your phone and like, it's like, hi, Ann, this is Bill Clinton. I'd like you to vote for, you know, like they have those very clever recordings now that call you. And I thought it was Oprah like as a robocall, but then I was like, this doesn't sound exactly like a robocall. So I said, Oprah Winfrey, Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> and, she was, and then she started talking in sentences that made it clear that she was not robotic. So yes, I no, I did not believe it. Wow. Well, congratulations. Well-deserved. There's a moment where Rose, the mom, allows us to see parts of her that I think it was Sylvia in the moment realized, like, maybe my mom does have little parts of each of us in her. And this mm -hmm. act, this brusque sort of front is hides a lot of different pieces of us. I imagine there are different pieces of these characters that live in you. But is there one that you feel is most resonant with, with anything to do with you yourself as a, as a woman? 
Yeah, I mean, the short answer is definitely Sylvie. But I actually feel like I share a lot of DNA with all of the characters except for Rose and Julia. And I love Rose and Julia, but I don't, I just am not them in any way, really. Um, I know people, I know a lot of people who are like Rose and Julia. And again, this is not an affection thing. I think they're wonderful, but I, I am part William. Like I'm in William, I'm in Cecilia, I'm in Emmeline. Like I could see myself and feel myself in them. And it, they were easier to write because I, I instinctively felt what they would, you know, how they would feel and what they might do in a way that it, the, it was harder for me to inhabit Julia and Rose. Amazing. Well, brilliant job. It was so good. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you. I know we're just about out of time here. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you, Zabi. Thank you, man. All right. Stay safe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.